Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I tell you, I'm really glad to be here. I told my wife last night, I said, I can't wait to get on the plane tomorrow so I can get some rest. This is a vacation for me. We've had our three grandchildren stay with us because their parents were off doing something with the oldest, their oldest. And uh, so I took the, the two boys under my wing and did things with them, and they're begging me to go fishing and hunting. And uh, so I took uh, the 9-year-old, 11-year-old boy, boys uh, fishing. And, you know, that's a little stressful event because I, I got a little John boat, and it was my first run on it because I just bought it. <clears throat> And you got to make sure you don't drown the kids, you know, and they don't get hurt and anything. And you got to teach them everything. And uh, so that's a lot of stress getting, just getting ready for that trip, unpacking the trip, taking care of them, watching over them. And, and then they're begging me to go hunting. So we, we went out to uh, uh, son-in-law's uh, West Texas ranch to go pig, pig hunting is all you can do out, that, out there this time of year. So you got real guns and you got a nine-year-old and 11-year-old and you're stressing out about that. And, the weather turned from 80 degrees to 30 degrees overnight, and they're <laughs> we're all freezing. And I tell you, I've been working solid for five days, and uh, this is my vacation, so I'm really enjoying this. Anyway, good to be back, and thank you for hosting the uh, Free Grace Alliance Conference. Um, we we do appreciate that, and appreciate Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, what else do I need to say? Well, if I don't. Think of it, I'll think of it tomorrow. I see that um, the conference theme is kind of centered on the fact of saving your life, which has to do with rewards. And so I'm going to speak on that tonight, not from an expositional viewpoint of taking one passage of Scripture and exposing. I'll be doing that for the other two messages. But tonight I want to take more of a theological approach, theological approach, a logical approach. Why rewards make sense. When we look at the whole of the New Testament, rewards is just right there. The, the judgment seat of Christ is right there in almost every book of the New Testament. I haven't tested this, but maybe every book. And yet, so many people miss it. I spoke at a church just recently, and I asked them, I said, how many people before you came to this church ever heard a teaching or series on the subject of rewards? And one hand went up. One hand went up. I had asked the same of you, but I know that you who have been here at Emmanuel for a while have heard about rewards. But I wonder if you remember before you came here, if you ever heard any teaching on the subject of rewards. Now, believe it or not, there are uh, many churches that don't teach on rewards and many people who don't teach on rewards. So some deny rewards exist altogether. Let me read a quote here from John Piper. He's a well-known Calvinist, a very strong Calvinist, okay? And, and typically, most Calvinists don't believe in the judgment seat of Christ as we see it and don't believe in a millennial kingdom. Uh, Reformed theology doesn't. So there's really no place for rewards in the future. So we'll get to that more, but they would put it all in this life. But listen carefully and look at what he says. He says, in final, get that word, in final salvation, 
at the last judgment. And they only see one judgment at the end, the great white throne judgment. Faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne. You get what he's saying? Faith is confirmed by its fruit. Not by faith, but by fruit or your works. And we are saved through that faith or through that fruit and that faith. So you see salvation in John Piper, and he actually believes in two justifications. Initial justification, when we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, we're justified. And then a final justification, if our works prove our salvation, then we are finally justified. Therefore, you are not finally justified without works. It's very much like the Catholic system. Two justifications, but the second one depends on works. Therefore, your salvation depends on works. There's no room for rewards. The works you do simply prove that you're saved and get you into heaven. So good works or fruit are simply proof of that final salvation, our reward. And one's initial justification comes through faith, but one's glorification or final salvation must be validated by works. Problem with that, this makes works necessary for salvation. We would ultimately be saved by works. And you know that's wrong because of Ephesians 2. 8 and 9, which says, by grace we've been saved, a free gift of God, uh, not by works. And yet, it, it, as much as they would try to argue against what I'm saying, it's very obvious that works play a part, the part, in salvation, because if you don't have works, you're not saved. Okay? So that's a typical Calvinist perspective. So they would not teach on rewards as something to be enjoyed an eternity, your reward, so to speak, would be just getting into heaven itself. That presents a conundrum for the strong Calvinists, okay? Now listen to here, this recent book by this Calvinist. And uh, of course, the Calvinism is of strong determinism, which means that God determines everything in eternity, okay? He decrees our salvation and he decrees our good works. And this particular guy says, his name's Spencer, or Alan Spence, uh, God, or he, God will graciously reward every loving act that he has accomplished among the faithful through his spirit and grant to them the gift of eternal life. You got to read it slowly and carefully. That's what theology is all about, is, is reading things carefully and defining them carefully. He says, God will graciously reward every loving act that he has accomplished among the faithful through his spirit. So God determines the good works. He does the good works through us, through his spirit. But that leaves a conundrum with us because Calvinists believe our works are predetermined from eternity since faith to be saved is a gift from God. Works are also from him. You know, they believe that we're, saved, we're given the faith to believe and that we are we're given that faith and that we have to be actually born again or regenerated in order to believe. So they would say, and this is called monergism, we have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. Whereas I hope most of you would believe that in what we call synergism, that we cooperate with God in our salvation. He provides everything we need to be saved, but we have to believe. That's synergism. We cooperate with what God has done. Here's the problem with the Calvinist perspective where God predetermines everything and he does everything for us. One problem is if God rewards good works, then he's rewarding himself. That makes sense? To a determinist, that makes sense. God doing the works, I mean, they probably have not thought about it, but 
he's rewarding himself. Another problem, rewards vary, as we'll see. Some get to rule over 10 cities, five cities, one city. Uh, there are different rewards. If there are different rewards and God determines the works that we do and does them through us, then think about this. God can earn a lesser reward. Sometimes God gets a bronze medal and maybe even just a participation award. That's a problem there, isn't there? And another problem, if good works are automatic, rewards are meaningless. In other words, if God gives us the faith to believe, if God gives us the fruit of our faith, if it's all predetermined, then rewards really are meaningless because we're not really doing anything. God's doing it all. So we would reject that position on just some logical and theological basis, bases. They have a misunderstanding of Ephesians 2.10, the verse that follows our well-known verses 8 and 9, which says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this phrase, should walk in them, uses a get technical on you, a verb in the subjunctive tense. The subjunctive tense, or mood, expresses a purpose or possibility that may be or might be, but not certainly. So what verse 10 is, not, is saying, not that we will walk in them with certainty, but we should walk in them. And that's the subjunctive mood in the Greek language that is used in this verse. So they have a problem when they say that we will absolutely guaranteed walk in good works. They say another problem is that God has good works planned for those who believe, but they're not guaranteed. Um, God has prepared good works, but it's his in intention that we should do good works, but they're not guaranteed. They involve our cooperation. Okay? Now, Reformed theology doesn't allow uh, for a millennium or a thousand-year period they would teach that we are in the kingdom now, and therefore, rewards are experienced in this life. There's not a coming, most of them don't believe in a coming judgment seat of Christ. They conflate the final judgment, from your perspective, it would be the final judgment, the great white throne, with the judgment seat of Christ, and they just see one judgment. If you can decipher this little chart here, you'll see it's not proportional because the tribulation is only seven years, right? And the millennial kingdom is a thousand years. But during the tribulation, by the time the tribulation period is over, all the, all the believers have been resurrected from uh, the, the church saints and the, the witnesses in the middle of the tribulation and the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are all resurrected by the end of the tribulation. And that's when we believe the judgment seat of Christ probably takes place before the millennial period and that those rewards at the judgment seat of Christ are enjoyed in the millennial kingdom. However, if you don't believe in a millennial kingdom, then the rewards are in this life. But they have to be spiritualized to apply to Christians in this life. There's not a literal 10 cities that you'll rule over. That's just, hype. That's just a metaphor for God's greater blessing in some way in this life. And that's how they would understand that because they only believe in one judgment. Well... Some object to the teaching of reward because they say, well, we're already forgiven all of our sins. And so if some receive lesser rewards or some are, works are burned up, well, that's punishment. We can't be punished for things that we do wrong because Jesus has paid for all of our sins. And so 
eternal life is a reward. We can't be punished again. But there are consequences for the Christian who lives a sinful life. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence. And that consequence is a loss of rewards. So it's not an active punishment in the sense that God is, uh, if a Christian doesn't live a worthy life and they are judged by God's, through God's fire, their works are burned up. That's just a consequence of the reward. It's not a purgatory where they're paying for their sins. Second John 8 uh, talks about, uh, John is talking about to the church, be careful lest we lose our reward to the whole group. And by the way, there's an insert in your, booklet there with a lot of verses that I can't read them. So I just put some of them down and there's so many other verses we could have put down that you can look them up. We just can't read them all. That's why I printed that particular printout for you. Well, my, one of my grandsons, he had a nice knife. He was so proud of it. He was showing it to me when they first got to the house. And, uh, you know, the whole week I'm following them along, you know, Nine and 11-year-old boys, they go 90 miles an hour, but their brains only go 15 miles an hour. So you're picking up after them. You're following them. You're reminding them, you know, get this, get that, put this away, put that away. You know, nice knife. Watch where you put it. Take care of it. Well, guess what? You know, spent half the day yesterday looking for his precious knife. He didn't listen to my warnings, I guess. It's not a punishment. I didn't hide his knife. He's just suffering the consequences of not listening well and not, not doing what I said. So that's just built into the fact that God has told us things to do. If we don't do them, we suffer the consequences. And part of that consequences is we lose rewards. Some people object to the idea of rewards because they say they have no merit. Since works have no merit before salvation, works have no merit after salvation. Salvation is by grace. We understand that. That's a free gift. But our good works merit God's recompense or reward. Luke 14, 14 um, talks about when you have a feast, I'm paraphrasing very loosely, when you have a feast, invite the poor because they can't pay, even if they can't pay you back, but God will repay you. And he uses one of the many, several words for reward. God will repay you. And by the way, the words for reward in themselves argue that it's not, these verses are not talking about salvation. Because if you look up the words that are used for reward, they speak of an obligation, a payment, remuneration, or wages, something like that. And that, that language is not salvation language, right? So they say that works have no merit after salvation, but it's very, very clear in the New Testament that they absolutely do. And God is happy to recompense us or pay us back in the language of rewards. It's sometimes even the word used for wages, uh, mythos, in 1 Corinthians 3, 8, where it says each one will receive his reward, mythos. It's the word that's used for wage or payment that is made. God doesn't pay us salvation, right? but he, he can pay us blessings for things that we might do or sacrifice in this life. Some say, well, rewards aren't biblical because it's selfish and mercenary to serve God for rewards. And I kind of agree with that. If you're just doing things because you think you're going to get something in the future uh, and, and profit from that in some mercenary way, 
Well, that certainly would be wrong. The scriptures do teach there are better motivations for serving God, like gratitude, love, duty, significance, eternal significance. But it does include in, in fear. You can serve God out of fear. The book of Hebrews will tell you. Rewards is one of the many, several motivations that God uses to motivate us. But it's not the chief. And I think rewards serves the place of God saying, hey, I got your back. You can't outgive me. No matter what sacrifice you make, I'm going to make it up to you. It's a consolation to know that. Frankly, I don't understand what all the rewards are. Some of them are very vague to me. The crown of righteousness, the crown of uh, glory and, and so forth. I don't know exactly what those are, but I don't need to. I don't know what treasures in heaven are. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. I don't know what that is. Do you? If you have some insight, let me know. I don't know what they are, but you know what? It's going to be good. And that's all I need to know. So if it's going to be good. God's going to uh, glorif be glorified by the rewards that he gives me. Rewards motivate us to live a life pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, the Lord, we persuade men. And that's the passage where he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and God will pay us according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we please God, he says. So it's a motivation to please God and doing the right thing. And if we please God, he's very happy to please us. And we can glorify God with our rewards. I believe that the rewards that we get are not for our glory, they're for his glory. What happens in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, when the elders are worshiping the Lord, they cast their crowns before him at his feet. How do you cast a crown if you, have, if you don't have one? I think all the rewards that we receive in some way are going to return glory to God and not inflate our own egos or glory. Some say, well, isn't salvation enough? Why do you got to talk about rewards? This is a quote from John Wesley, who's not exactly in our theological camp, but evidently believed in rewards. Listen to what he says here. There is an inconceivable variety in the degrees of reward in the other world. Let not any slothful one say, if I get to heaven at all, it'll, I'll be content. Such a one may let heaven go altogether. In other words, he just won't care about anything but getting to heaven. In worldly things in this life, men are ambitious to get as high as they can. Christians have a far more noble ambition. The difference between the very highest and the lowest state in the world is nothing to the smallest difference between the degrees of glory. You see what he's saying? Some men are just content to say, oh, I'm getting to heaven, that's enough. But if you just look at the, this earth and this world in our system here, people work hard to get to the top. And he's saying we have lost sight of the fact that there's different degrees of glory in eternity. And people aren't aware of that, and they need to be aware of that. So that's coming from John Wesley. Here's why rewards make sense. And I'm going to give you nine points, and they're on the sheet. Save you a lot of time writing, and I, I, we can't read all the verses. Rewards are God's idea and pleasure. Matthew 6, he talks about those who pray in secret, those who give in secret will be rewarded openly. He doesn't say how. He doesn't need to. You will be rewarded openly. God's pleased to do that. That's not why people pray in secret or give in secret, but God's pleased to reward that behavior. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said when he returns, he will bring his rewards 
and pay people and reward them according to their works. So rewards uh, make sense because they're God's idea and pleasure. Just like a parent would be happy to reward a child who does well in school or does their chores without being asked, most parents would be very happy to reward that child even though the child isn't doing it for the reward. Rewards make sense because they clarify the judgments. This is what we're talking about. You have the great white throne judgment. You have the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment is at the end of the millennial kingdom period, the thousand-year period. The judgment seat of Christ happens before that millennial period. The great white throne judgment is for all unbelievers. The book of life is open, and if your name is not there, you're cast into the lake of fire, and he judges each one according to their works. So works are the basis for punishment at the great white throne judgment. At the judgment seat of Christ, though, it's different. It's all believers. Paul says, we will all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our works will be evaluated, whether good or bad. So rewards clarify the judgments. And when we conflate the two judgments, what happens? You're evaluated by your works in order to get into heaven. And suddenly the gospel is contorted, or actually distorted or perverted, because works are injected. Okay, so rewards give us eternal significance, and that's why they're important. Um, what we, who we are and what we do in this life makes a difference in eternity. Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents, talking about how we are responsible as uh, uh, stewards with what God has entrusted with us, and according to how faithful we are, we will be rewarded. And this is where he talks about ruling over the different cities, um, out of cities. 2 Timothy uh, 2.12, if we suffer, we will reign with Christ. So there is eternal significance if you're suffering, eternal significance if you're faithful as a steward. A fourth reason rewards make sense is rewards help us understand difficult passages about the gospel. And this is really where Theologically, the rubber meets the road because we want to keep works out of the gospel, but if we don't make this distinction that some passages are talking about rewards, we suddenly put works into the gospel, you see. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 is the passage where Paul talks about, I, I buffet my body so that lest I be um, uh, disqualified. Thank you. It's late at night. It's past my bedtime. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about being disqualified from a prize. It's a word that's used in the athletic realm about being disqualified from a, a race or a prize. And he would lose a reward unless he lives a disciplined, godly life. Matthew 10, 32-33 is a passage where Jesus says, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Some people say this is talking about salvation. So you've got to confess Jesus in order to be saved, actually. And if you deny him, you, you're not saved or were never saved or you lose your salvation. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's talking about being commended to God. If you confess him openly before men and are not ashamed of his name, the name of Jesus, and you confess that name before people, God will, Jesus will confess or commend you to the Father. It's a rewards passage. And then you have Revelation chapters 2 through 3, which are written to the seven churches and he talks there about the overcomers and to those who overcome. And in, in the different churches, it's different trials, but he, he challenges them all to overcome the evil people in the congregation or their lackadaisical attitude or something like that. 
And to those who overcome, he promises some special reward, like eating from the tree of life or having, becoming a pillar in the temple of God. Now, there are some people, good, good folks and friends even, in the free grace house that uh, believe that overcomers are simply people who believe in Jesus Christ. And I've considered that view carefully, but I've really come down on the side that the overcomers are those who have overcome some trial by their, and show it by their good works or, or doing the good works that God is asking them to do. And so he's rewarding them for overcoming. Just the word itself shows that it's not faith. It's something that they're doing. And so the reward is to those who repent of their wrong way and do the right things. And if we, the problem I have is if that's talking about believers, again, we're injecting works in the gospel, and I have a problem with that. So rewards make sense in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. My last two grace notes are on that. Um, if you get my newsletter or look online. A fifth reason rewards make sense is rewards motivates, motivate us to live a life pleasing to God. We said this really already. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 10 says that we'll be evaluated according to the things that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. But you know what? I like Hebrews 11, 25, 26 so much. I'm actually going to read that passage it's a wonderful passage in the chapter of faith, in the hall of faith, we call it sometimes, and it's about Moses. You remember what it says about Moses, verse 25 and 26? So important, I'm going to put my glasses on. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses forsook Pharaoh, Pharaoh's idolatry, all the pleasures and sins that a life of royalty could indulge in because he wanted a future reward. He was motivated by the prospect of a future reward to live a life pleasing to God. It can't be any said any clearer than what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has told us there about Moses. A sixth reason that rewards make sense is rewards improve the quality of life now as well as later. We've been talking about rewards in the millennial kingdom and enjoyed there and in eternity, but you know what? The Bible says that uh, Jesus not only wants us to have eternal life, but have an abundant life. So that implies there are rewards to living a life pleasing to God here and now. In Luke 18, 29 through 30, I think that's the passage where Jesus says, uh, the disciples come to him and says, look, Lord, we've left everything. You know, when he talks about how hard it is to get into heaven, like a, going through the eye of a needle, a camel going through the eye of a needle, his disciples say, wow, if it's that hard to get into heaven, we've left everything. What do we get? And Jesus says to them, uh, and I'm, again, I'm loosely paraphrasing because uh, I haven't memorized the passage, but he says, look, um, you will, you, no man has left father, mother, brother, sister, and lands who will not receive a hundredfold in eternity and in this life, or in this life and eternity. There's a reward in heaven for those who forsake even their own families and their property to serve the Lord. 
that reward is not just in eternity, it's in this life as well. According to Luke 18, James 1.12 talks about those who suffer will receive the crown of life. I take that as a richer life. They understand God. They have a deeper insight into him through their suffering, and their life is fuller and richer. And Perhaps you know people who could say that who have suffered. Another reason rewards make sense is that they reflect God's justice. We already mentioned Luke 14. If you invite poor people to your dinner, they can't pay you back, but God will pay you back. God has a, he's a God of justice and fairness, and so he'll make it right. He'll pay you back. 2 Corinthians 5.10, same thing. We'll receive what we deserve according to the works. Uh, Revelation 20 Verse 12 and 22, 12 also talk about the rewards according to our works. An eighth reason is that rewards prepare us for eternal service. Again, we look to the parables of the parable of the talents where we will help rule with Christ over however many cities he feels that we are worthy of according to how we live our life responsibly in this world. Luke 19 is the parable of the Minas with the same idea that we will rule according to how we use the resources he gives us. 2 Timothy 2.12 talks about if we, uh, if we uh, endure in our faith, then we will reign with Christ. See, what we do in this life makes a difference in eternity. The ninth reason that rewards make sense is that rewards magnify God's glory. Again, rewards are not given for our glory. They're given to glorify God, I do believe. 1 Peter 5.4 talks about um, the crown of glory given to those who rule well, elders who rule well. And I think that crown of glory is, a re is, is a, just a reflection of God's glory or a greater, in, a greater capacity to experience his glory in this life and maybe going on into the next life as well. And then Revelation 4.10, again, talks about casting crowns down at the feet of Jesus. And that will certainly glorify him. Well, those are nine reasons that rewards make sense. You said, Charlie, why didn't you just make it an even ten? Well, I couldn't think of a tenth one. I want you to give me a tenth one, and I'll include it next time I present this. So what? Well, life under grace is not a life of license. You see, that's one of our major defenses when we preach a gospel of free grace. People will say, oh, well, you're saying that people can just get saved through faith and they don't have to live a certain way and, and, they, can, and they can't lose their salvation. It's just a license to sin. We say, no, God holds us responsible. There is a judgment seat of Christ facing every believer in Jesus Christ who will have to give an account for how they have lived out their salvation how they have lived the Christian life. Life under grace is not a license, life of license, but a life of responsibility with temporal, this life, and eternal consequences like rewards or the loss of rewards. So what? Well, learn to distinguish between the two judgments to keep works out of the gospel. This is essential if you want to have a clear gospel and teach and preach a clear gospel is to make sure you understand there are two judgments because people will often throw at you 
these passages on rewards, earning rewards, and say, no, no, you can't just believe. You've got to, to work because he says, if you don't do this, you'll go through the fire or something. And they think it's talking about hell. But if you understand that there are two judgments, and one is for works for believers, and the other is according to works for unbelievers, then we keep works out of the gospel. And I do believe that unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20, where it talks about the great white throne judgment, are judged according to the works because some are going to experience a hotter fire in, in the lake of fire. They're going to be in the hottest corner where they deserve to be, like uh, Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler. You might have a, a friendly neighbor who's an unbeliever, and they're good people, but they're not Christians. Do they deserve to suffer as much as a Hitler or Hussein? I don't think so. So I, they're judged according to the works in Revelation 20, and I think that means that the fire is going to be stoked a little hotter for them. Well, if that's true of unbelievers, it certainly would be true of believers that they would enjoy different degrees of reward as well, or else God's justice and fairness could be called into question. So learn to distinguish those two judgments, and then live responsi responsibly because we have to give an account for our lives. Can't say it enough, but what we do in this life counts for all of eternity. This life is but a small dash in a multi-volume epic tale of eternity. And what we do in this little dash will determine our experience for all of eternity. So live with eternity in mind. That should make a difference, as we've heard, of how we live today. We should live consciously knowing that we give an account for what we say, what we do, how we treat other people. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's kind of a well-known quote. You've maybe heard it before, but I like the way he puts it. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. We don't want to go through Christians like, a, like, we don't want to go through our lives as Christians like children playing in the mud, making mud pies, when God has promised us these infinite riches and joys and rewards when we live responsibly, when we serve God, when we walk by faith and live by faith. So rewards are an integral part of the scriptures, and understanding of them is integral to understanding the clear gospel of God's grace. I frankly don't know what all the rewards are, as I said. Some of them seem vague to me, but if God says they're good, then I believe they're good. If he calls them treasures, I believe they're treasures. If he calls it a crown of glory, I believe that that's a good thing. I don't need to understand it. But what I think I understand is that those who live faithfully and those who are good stewards and serve the Lord well have a greater capacity to enjoy him for all of eternity. 
And maybe that's just what it is. Some people will arrive in heaven with an empty cup and God will fill their cup and they'll be happy. Some will come with a bucket and God will fill their bucket and they'll be happy. And some people will come with a giant tank and God will fill their tank and they'll be overjoyed. Everyone in heaven will be happy. Some may enjoy the Lord more than others because of the capacity that they developed in this life. Does that make sense? When my children were young and I was poor, a seminary student, I wanted my children to have some culture. I heard that the Navy band was coming to town and they had free tickets, so I immediately got on the phone and got some free tickets for all of our family to go hear the Navy band. And we went in there and I got good seats about two or three rows back from the front. In front of, front of us, was, the front row was filled. There's one guy right in the middle, right in front of us. He was wearing a uniform. He was obviously retired, gray-haired, older fellow, but he was wearing a uniform. Didn't think much of it, but they, they played some classical songs. They played some popular songs. I looked over at my kids, you know, pretty soon they're all falling asleep. I enjoyed the music. It was good. I appreciate classical music. Don't know much about it, but I can enjoy it, you know, and enjoy some of the other songs. Uh, it was an enjoyable experience. I asked my kids afterwards, I said, how'd you like the concert? And they said, oh, it was all right. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. All right. Whatever I heard, whatever, <laughs> the parts were I awake for. At one, point in the at one point in the concert, the Navy band said, we're going to play the anthem for the different branches of the military. And if you served in the military in that branch, you just, feel, you just do what you feel led to do. So they played uh, the anthem for the Army when the caissons go rolling along, and there was some applause in the audience. They played the Marine anthem uh, from the halls of Montezuma, and there was a few people applauding here and there. They played uh, the Air Force anthem, um, not up, up and away. Uh, <laughs> off we go into the wild blue yonder. And there was some applause there. And they eventually got to the Navy. Of course, they were Navy bands, so they saved that for last. And they played Anchors Away. And this, this, this man on the front row was sitting there listening to this. When they started playing Anchors Away, he turned around. He faced the audience. He stood at attention. <clears throat> he saluted and held the salute for a full minute. He enjoyed that song more than I would ever have a capacity to. And I wondered, why did he have a capacity to enjoy that song so much? Did he serve 20 years in the Navy? Did he lose a leg? Did he lose his son? Something, some price he paid, helped him enjoy something immensely more than I, even though I enjoyed the concert. Do you understand what rewards are about? They're developing a capacity in this life for a richer eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, rewards is such an important doctrine to understand, but more important to that is that uh, no one experiences rewards who doesn't know you as Savior. And if there's anyone here who wonders about their salvation, anyone in the sound of my voice who's even questioning whether there'll be an eternity, I pray that they might understand that Jesus paid the price for all of their sins. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. and He promises eternal life if they simply place their faith in him and what he's done instead of what they do. But we know what we do is important when it comes to rewards after we're saved. And so help us to live responsibly, Lord. We want to enjoy God more and for eternity. 
And I pray that this is impressed upon our hearts today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.